This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. For logbook servicing you can rely on, you need to make the right choice. You need trained professionals who are fully qualified to service your car according to manufacturer's specifications. For real peace of mind and a nationwide warranty, book in or book online at repcoservice.com. Welcome to Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Hello, my name is Tim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories brought to you by Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Uh, My guest in this episode uh, is a journalist, an author and many other things. And full disclosure from the get-go, she's also been a friend for the last uh, 25 or so years. She has been a trailblazer uh, throughout her career. She was uh, the first woman, I understand, of Asian heritage Uh, to make it onto commercial television news in Australia. Uh, And she's also put together the most incredible and tumultuous family history. Uh, It's called House of Kwa. It spans four generations of her amazing family that take us from a a privileged silk trading family in Imperial China through Hong Kong and the Japanese invasion and occupation during World War II and finds its way onto Perth. And it chronicles what was a pretty challenging and at times traumatic childhood, uh, particularly in the suburbs of Scarborough and Bicton. It is an absolutely epic story. My guest in this episode is Mimi Kwa. Mimi, how are you? I'm fantastic, Tim. Thank you so much for having me on the program. It's an absolute pleasure. It is an absolute pleasure. And what a pleasure it was reading your book. I have to say, I mean, you know, every family has its own stories, its own characters and, and conflicts along the way. But your family story is is something else. It's next level, isn't it? What on earth prompted you to sit down and dig up the past? I mean, some of it is good memory, but a lot of it isn't. So there had always been a story within me. You know, you've known me for more than 25 years and I've always had stories about the family to tell around the, the dinner table. But what actually prompted me to write it down was that my father sued me in the Supreme Court of Western Australia, and he sued me over the estate of my late aunt, Teresa. And that story just sort of unfolds as, um, you know, part of the modern family saga and drama. But I think what I wanted to do with the story and um, and what I ended up doing with House of Choir was actually um, a therapy for myself mm. after I'd been in court with my dad or against my dad. And I really wanted to find out what made him the sort of man who would do that to his daughter. And I wanted to excavate and explore what made me the type of gal who would stand up to him. So that just started this whole exploration of the family history. And did you work that out? Did you work that work out what motivated him and, and what made you? Yes, yeah, I did. It was actually the most amazing five-year um, psychological therapy of my life. So yeah. I went back 
through history back a few generations, which I guess in Chinese history isn't very far. But I went back to my great-grandfather and I followed the path of the family from the imperial compound in Beijing down one of the silk routes to southern China. And I looked at my dad's upbringing in particular when he was born into a family with 32 brothers and sisters and he was the youngest boy he lived through the the family migrated from southern china to hong kong where my dad lived through the japanese occupation of hong kong during the second world war and this is a history that i didn't really learn about mm. at school and i know that most of us growing up in a Western country, don't know about. And that is the experience in Asia and Southeast Asia during the Second World War. And particularly Hong Kong, that was a completely new story to me. So I knew that my dad had lived through it and he'd always peppered my childhood with um, anecdotes. And I really wanted to find out what must that have been like for him. So as a little boy of seven years old, growing up in Japanese-occupied Hong Kong. He watched the bombs fall on Hong Kong. Hong Kong was bombed 52 times by the Allies trying to get the occupiers, the Japanese, out of Hong Kong. And so this little boy is basically witnessing war over, you know, this period of his life where, you know, his formative years, they were having to climb into bomb shelters to, um, you know, avoid injury. And they were having, as kids, my dad, as a kid, was having to go out to work in a factory. He worked in a blacksmith shop. And he really witnessed um, a lot of conflict and brutality at the hands of the Japanese occupiers. And I think that really, any sort of embedded trauma that we experience as children, and obviously in wartime, that is extreme, any sort of trauma that's not dealt with manifests in different ways. It can manifest in hoarding to to try to fill the void in your life that you know, or, or to try to protect yourself. It can manifest in um, dysfunctional behaviour. And the conflict between my father and I in court was just a manifestation of yep. that dysfunction from yep. his childhood. And we're not giving too much away here because it is the first part of the book. So it's not a spoiler alert to, to, to talk about this part, is it? Because it's where the book starts, Qua versus Qua in the Supreme Court of Western Australia. I mean, your dad obviously is one of the pivotal characters in the book, but let's go back to, I suppose, the first generation that you capture. This exotic world that I think a lot of people um, perhaps in Australia can't immediately re relate to Um Imperial China. I mean, it, it, it seems like a life of, of privilege, um, quite a lavish life that your descendants live back there. Um, how did you get so much detail to paint a picture of what life was like back there? We're going back, you know, many, many years. How did you bring all that information together and, and bring that generation of choirs to life? I have this amazing second cousin through my grandfather's brother's lineage of Kwa, who his name's Matthew Kwa and he's in his 80s now, I think. He's a retired oncologist and he has actually spent much of his life piecing together his strand of Kwa, which of course um, at 
the beginnings of his family tree include the beginnings of my strand of choir. And so he was really instrumental in providing me with this epic family tree that if, you know, I, I literally printed it out on A4 sheets of paper and sticky taped it all together and then unfurled it down the corridor and it just went for metres and metres. <laughs> and what was fascinating, I found, and I also had to get friends, Chinese speaking and Chinese language reading friends to come and help me translate it because it was, it was all in Chinese characters or is all in Chinese characters. And what I find absolutely fascinating is that my great-grandfather had many wives. This is my great-grandfather. Had many wives and he, but what was recorded in history was only the wives who um, had a son, who had a first son. So if you were wife number one and you had a son first as your first child, then you were in the family tree. But wife number two isn't in the family tree because she didn't have a son first. She may have had a son later on. So it was only... I mean, it's just so incredible that all of these women in not only my family tree and my history and my lineage, all these women across... China, across the world, um, have actually been erased in a way. They've, their names have never been recorded because they didn't sire a son yeah, or didn't have a son. So and just, just um, humour me with the maths for a minute. So your dad's one of 32. Um, mm-hmm. How many wives did his father have? So and, my and where did he fall in that, in that 32? Yes. So my grandfather had three wives at the same right. time, which wasn't uncommon in that generation. That's I mean, a lot of mouths to feed, isn't it? Ago. 32 children. It's a lot children. of mouths to feed. And yeah, three wives. So, and three wives. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, and, and look, this is of an era. It seems amazing to think that it's only two generations ago, but this is of an era where girls' feet were bound in China, and that was highly fashionable and highly accepted and child brides were not uncommon and so my three grandmothers were essentially teenage brides and um, had their feet bound and were you know their purpose in life was to bring children into the family which Mm. they certainly did in abundance and uh, my grandfather moved to Hong Kong and he took two of the wives with him to Hong Kong and my father was born in Hong Kong. And in terms of where he falls in that 32 brothers and sisters, he is um, 31 and then there was a little sister born after him. Although it's very difficult to verify because if you talk to my dad, he says, oh, maybe it was 34, maybe it was 32. I've seen a newspaper article that says that there were 28 children, but I think that's because they didn't count um, some of the children who unfortunately died young. So, yeah, yeah. So... It's all very interesting, and Either it's way, been it's very a, it's very challenging piecing it it's all an together. Enormous but it's family tree, I bet. We'll just let that sit for a moment. We're going to take a break. Um, after that, um, yeah, time in Hong Kong uh, during the war. We'll explore that more and how those experiences might have uh, shaped the person that you came to know uh, as your dad. Uh, someone that I met along the way too, Francis, who was always a, a pretty colourful character from my experiences, but uh, you've certainly got uh, vastly more insight to share about the person, Francis Kwa. So we'll get into that right after we take a break. This is Inspiring Stories. Mimi Kwa is our special guest. Back with more in a moment. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything.
Inspiring stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Story. Uh, Mimi Kwa is my special guest in this episode. We are kind of right in the deep end of her family history. Uh, there is so much to it and uh, I encourage you uh, to seek out her book, House of Kwa, because it is quite an extraordinary read. Um, Mimi, your dad, um, let's just say he's, a, he's a, an unconventional character. But I suppose when you read the book, you come to have some understanding of, of why that is. You sort of pointed to, earlier in our chat to some of the experiences he endured uh, during the Japanese invasion and occupation uh, of Hong Kong. But, I mean, the day-to-day existence that you kind of lay out in the book, it, it is incredibly challenging, isn't it? And, and dangerous times. I mean, buildings are crumbling around him. Food is scarce. You know, you almost have to sidle up to the to the Japanese, your tormentors, just to survive. I mean, it, these are perilous times, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one thing that really interests me is the idea of intergenerational inherited trauma and how we break that cycle. And I think really looking at my father's childhood and trying to imagine what it must have been that he went through that impacted him during those formative years, that was so important for me to be able to make sense of what he's like now. So yes, in those um, perilous times, as you put it, there were civilians being bayoneted in the streets. You know, there were lines for food rations. There were children, as I mentioned before, working in factories. And there were women and girls being hidden um, so that they wouldn't be abused. And it, it was it must have just been a dark three years and eight months for Hong Kong. Mm. And I, I can't imagine what it would have been. I mean, we, we've learned about the Holocaust and this is, you know, a, an absolute travesty and a blight on the human race and, and what humans are capable of doing to one another. But I didn't know about the extent of the Second World War and Japanese invasion of Hong mm. Kong until I researched it. So even though my dad had told me stories about when he was a little boy and he would stand on the hill with his friends and watch the bombs fall and he would joke that they were seeing the bombs before the news could even report it. And that sort of bravado, I think, got him through and he developed that sense of humour and bravado because that was his way of surviving. Mm. And that's a a personality trait that um, has carried him right through until today. So he's actually got a terrific sense of humour. You've met him. He is (laughs) a real character. Quirky, he does light up a room and he's quirky quirky. and unconventional. And and that is a result of this... um, very, I mean, I wouldn't call war colourful, but it's certainly um, experientially speaking, like there was a lot of, um, you know, varied experiences that he had. And for an innocent young boy, uh, but still old enough to remember a lot of it, um, Mm. obviously had a massive impact on who he is. Um, We're fast forwarding a little bit here, Min, but tell us what brought that quiet part of the family to Australia. So my auntie, who was my father's older sister from third wife, Auntie Teresa was the world's first Chinese air hostess for BOAC, which is now British Airways. And in those days, it was like being a movie star. I mean, she was chosen from hundreds of candidates to get the job as a flight attendant. And 
back then you could only fly if you were nobility or a dignitary of some sort or very, very wealthy or a movie star. And so she really rubbed shoulders. She crewed flights of 15 people, 15 passengers, that was a full flight, and she rubbed shoulders with the rich and famous. Anyway, coming back to your question about how we ended up in Australia, because of her breadth of experience across the globe, she really got a taste for um, what it was to travel and how important it was to have an education to be able to set you up in life. So she worked very hard to pay for her siblings to go to university and she sent my dad over to Australia to Melbourne and down to Geelong to the Gordon Institute to study engineering or mechanical engineering. So he came over literally on a boat um, to Australia to study and that was um, 60 years ago and, and that was what began the Australian strand of my, I call it strands because there are other quas here. And actually, mm. since publishing the book, I've had so many quas on Facebook and Instagram who have reached out to me. And it's just been fantastic. And we've been having to work out how we're related and, and tracing that family back again. So that's even added more to the story. So thank goodness I didn't know about them before I wrote House of Quar because it would be <laughs> three book be books, not one. pages long. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about the sorts of, of racism uh, racist episodes that he had to endure when he got here. I mean, you know, we're talking about um, Australia. What in the in the nineteen sixties? Um, yeah, you and, know, white and... Australia policy. Um, these were tough times to be a migrant, particularly from a, a non-European part of the world. Absolutely, and of course, we all recognise now, or hopefully, all recognise now, the in incredible contribution that migrants have made to Australia, and that the Chinese community have made to Australia since even before the goldfields. But my dad was regarded by many in his cohort as being a, a bludger that he had, that he'd come over and that he hadn't paid for his education that the government was paying for it, which was not true. Auntie Teresa was paying you know every cent for his education and accommodation, but there was this perception that he was somehow leeching off um, the taxpayers' money, and as a result of that, and also there was racism and there's you know fear and there, when you've got that scarcity mindset, I guess that can bring out the worst in people and the worst is is when somebody physically assaults somebody just based on their race. And so that did happen to my dad. Mm. And he did put up with, um, you know, not only casual but very overt racist comments throughout his yep. life in Australia. He came over to Australia when he was 20 and he's 87 now. Wow. And it was it was sickening to read. The, the challenge for him started literally as he put his first steps on Australian soil, the thousand pounds, I think it was, that Auntie Teresa yes. had, had had given to him to keep him going for the couple of years during his studies in Geelong. Stolen. Can you Moments yeah. after, after getting here. Yeah. All Can you gone. imagine a thousand pounds in those days would have been tantamount to twenty thousand mm. dollars today? I'm guessing. I'm not a financial expert, <laughs> but I'm going to say so. twenty grand today. A lot, a lot of money, yeah. and that was meant to last him for two years. And somebody, an opportunist, hopefully that money changed that thief's life for the better somehow. 
But that was a life-changing amount of money and losing that amount of money uh, certainly changed my dad's life. And that just contributed to what, you know, he'd already been a resilient kid who'd lived through occupation of Hong Kong and then to come to Australia, the lucky country, and to sort of have his hopes and dreams again eroded by this, um, you know, robbery was must have been dev- I mean, I wasn't around then, but it must have been devastating for him. And he has told me about that, which is obviously how I've been able to thread all of these stories together. But my auntie Teresa has also told me some of the stories that my dad hasn't told me about yeah, his life. I bet. Um, just before we get to the break, tell us um, how the choirs came to be in Perth then. So your dad's arrived in, in Victoria to study in Geelong. How then did it come across in Nullarbor? So he just had an adventurous spirit. And I think because Auntie Teresa was a great traveller, a world traveller, he decided that he would um, travel across the Nullarbor and he ended up in Perth and decided to stay. And he opened the biggest youth hostel in the Southern Hemisphere. It was a landmark, wasn't it? I mean, it genuinely was. The famous Mandarin Gardens in Scarborough, um, which became your home or, as it turns out, one of your uh, homes um, through what was a pretty challenging childhood uh, for you as well, Mim. We'll get into that right after we take a break. The the very whirlwind romance uh, with your mum, uh, who was, what, 20 years younger uh, than your dad. Again, the, the epic story continues. We'll get into it right after we take a break. This is Inspiring Stories. Back with more in a moment. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Uh, everyone has a story to tell, and this is uh, an epic one indeed. It's brought to you by Bower and O'Day. Um, Mimi, in these uh, Inspiring Stories interviews, we generally focus on the one person. So I apologise because we're not, we haven't really talked about you yet. But um, I suppose to tell your story, it's important to go and tell your backstory as well uh, and the story of your dad and the generation beyond and beyond. Um, but we're getting to the stage, I suppose, where Mimi enters the world. Um, but just before we do, your mum and your dad, tell us how they met and how you came to be. So my mum and dad met um, bushwalking. So they were... In Perth. Independently in Perth, yes. Yep. So they were bushwalking. And as the story goes, my dad tripped over a log very unceremoniously and my mum went and helped him up. And then... Eight months later, I was born. Right. <laughs> or do the, oh, no, actually, and then, no, I'm not doing the maths now. Nine months later, I was born, um, but they got married after knowing each other for six weeks. Six weeks. Yeah. And there was a significant age gap. Your, your yes. dad, 20 years, your mum's senior. I mean, she was, what, 19, 20? Um, yes, at, yeah, at, she at, was. At the time, so very young, and I understand, you know, you're – Mum's side of the family didn't necessarily approve of what's uh, what was going on at the time, and so began. No, she just a, a met this man. Pretty difficult a relationship from that point onwards. Yeah, that's right, and um, you know, so a, a huge factor in my growing up is that my mum was a, an undiagnosed chronic schizophrenic, and that really. Um, 
coloured my life to the extent that, you know, I had dysfunction going on from my mum's side. I had um, a degree of dysfunction going on on my dad's side because of the traumas that he had experienced as a child. But of course, as a child myself, I Mm. had no concept of what trauma was and what um, definitely not what inherited trauma was. And I had no concept that I was just another cog in the wheel of this cycle of dysfunction. Mm. And, you know, there are obviously um, threads and themes of of mental illness that... um, permeate my story because that was my upbringing. It was growing up with a mentally ill parent. And anybody who has grown up with a mentally ill parent or relative knows how um, impactful that can Mm. be on a young child's life and on the way that you view the world. I mean, it really did give me a filter onto the world that I could have done without, but I'm mm. very grateful that I had that because I'm now able to tell the story and hopefully reach others with it. And you certainly didn't sugarcoat those moments in the book. Um, you know, if we can go there, it's, it's, it is a fairly dark and, and, and bleak point in the book, but, you know, seeing your mum trying to take her own life and having to get her help when there were, you know, there wasn't a second to spare. That's something, that's something that no one should ever see their own, well, any, any loved one or anyone um, going through, mm-hmm. let alone your own mum, let alone, you know, when you're at such an impressionable age. What was it like for you digging up those memories and going back there and trying to make some new sense of what had happened? It was, in all honesty, very hard. It yeah. was, you know, there were times... I'm going to cry now. It it it, it was. I, I referred to it as being a therapy, and it really was. It was a therapy writing down these memories and stringing them together. I had no idea that I was actually going to be writing a book that would one day be mm. published. It was really journaling for my own healing, and digging up the past and actually resurfacing um, or allowing memories to surface that I had long buried was very challenging and and I did break down to break through and for me for my own healing it was necessary for me to actually confront the past to to confront experiences that I had had to confront things that I had witnessed um, and to really lean into it and it's such a difficult painful thing to do and that's why most of us don't do it Mm. because it is it's one of those things you think I haven't got time to deal with that baggage that I'm actually carrying around with me but once you do deal with it and I can only speak from my own experience once I dealt with it it was so worthwhile it took me five years Mm. of intense Um, Not only going to see a psychologist, but also writing, which was sort of part of my self-therapy, meditating, walking. It it was intense, but it was really worth it because I've come out the other side, just a a happier, healthier, brighter, lighter human being. And I actually thought that I was okay before. (laughs) 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 Now I'm double okay. At the very end of the book, you, you you know, you take some time to acknowledge some of the people who have um, been really important to you over the years and, and your great friend from your childhood, um, Narelle, uh, I think summed up, I think, what a lot of people who perhaps know you, Mim, and, and, and then might go on to read your book, where she says, you know, it's one of those moments, she says, um, how did you come out of this so normal? 
And, um, oh, so actually there are two Narelles in my life. So there was yeah. my great childhood friend, Narelle. And, and um, this is the other Narelle, and, and is then, it? And then the other Narelle, is, you would know her as Foxy. Correct. So... So she is the Narelle. Who She's the Narelle. Around to me. Yeah. She's the Narelle. Two Narelles, not to be, <laughs> not to be confused, easily confused. Two Narelles in my life. Two, you know, best friends at different yeah. stages of my life, actually. Um, and anyway, so so Narelle, in brackets, Foxy turned to me and she just said, she just read, you know, um, a rough manuscript, maybe twenty thousand words I'd written at that stage, and she just said, Mim. How on earth did you turn out so normal? And I thought, which is a great oh, question, sure. because when you, <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. when you read through your childhood, Mim, it it is a wonder. I mean, you had a, you, your mum with this profound, uh, undiagnosed mental illness. Y- your dad, who was on his own <laughs> unconventional path to whatever it was he was on a path to, <laughs> no one really knows. You divided your time between this um, massive youth hostel of a home in Scarborough and, uh, well, your grandparents' home where your mum lived in Bicton, you know, faring between the two, it was a different sort of childhood for you, wasn't it? It was. It was so different. I look back on it and I just think, wow, how unusual and extraordinary my childhood was compared to so many people that I was, you know, growing up alongside. I just wanted to be the meat and three veg girl that I perceived my friends to be and and I'm sure everybody was having their own experiences good or bad or otherwise but I just wanted normality and I just wanted simplicity but instead I got this backpacker youth hostel where I had a hundred guests every night you know flamethrowers and jugglers and acrobats and rock bands and swim teams and basketball teams that would come and stay with us as well as as well as Barkies and that's the odd <laughs> member of a royal family, all sorts of colourful characters. I mean, at the all same sorts. time, that's what uh, I got. Exactly. Yeah, it was a it was a licorice all sorts sort of upbringing. But at the same time, in the background, you've got um, this ongoing uh, drama and concern around your mum as well. And I suppose it wasn't a great surprise that through your, um, you know, I suppose late primary school into your teens. Um, you went, for want of a better phrase, a bit off the rails yourself, didn't you? Oh, yeah, not a bit off the rails. I really went, you know, full off the rails. Yeah. I, I didn't do it by halves. And I, somehow I managed to keep a head on my shoulders through it all. And I think I owe that to a great education, but also having the love of my family. So despite my mum's illness, you know, she just loved me madly you know I was her world and still am and um, and my dad you know despite his um, eccentricities he just he loved me but he just maybe wasn't there for me at the times when I really needed some stability and neither was she because they were both dealing with mm. their own their own trials and tribulations their own demons and 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 in my mum's case an illness that she wasn't getting any support or help for did you worry about putting all of this down in a book and being so raw and honest about it uh, and so personal? I mean, it's one thing to share these stories with members of your own family or, or even your therapist, but to put it down on the page for anyone to read these deeply personal experiences, did you worry about the consequences of that on other people? I was very conscious of seeking permission from people who are featured in the story who might um, feel that 
their integrity or their character was being compromised. That is seeking permission from everybody except my dad. Mm. <laughs> so, mm. because that was just, I mean, and when you read my story, you'll understand the complexities with that. Uh, my mum was um, very, you know, I sat down with my mum after I decided that I was going to take the book to a publisher and I sat down and, and sought her permission and, and she also, I also asked her never to read it because it actually brings up so you told a her lot not of trauma. That, yep. Yeah, yep. yeah, because it brings up obviously a lot of trauma that I don't think with her mental condition, although it is in check now, I just don't think that it's healthy or helpful for her to have to revisit any of, um, you know, those incidents that happened during my childhood, many of which she wasn't of a conscious state of mind to even remember now. Mm. So to have that thrown up again, I think would be terrible. And I think what I, what I really wanted to say was that in telling my story and I was concerned about the characters in my story, but mostly... Um, and actually, everybody I approached just said, I trust you, Mim. I trust you with yeah. representing my part in your story. And I just think that was just so wonderful to hear from some friends that I hadn't been in contact with for 20 years. But to, you know, for them still to have that faith in me. And Facebook is fantastic because I was able to get in touch with people. Mm. But I put this story down, warts and all, because I feel that I've actually found my true purpose in life. You know, I've been a broadcaster for more than 20 years. I've conducted hundreds, if not thousands of interviews. And it was only when I sort of turned the spotlight on myself and looked into my own past that I realized that I actually had something to contribute to the world, to help in the area of mental health, to help in the area of um, female equality, gender equality, to help in the area of diversity. And armed or equipped with my story, what better vehicle than to be able to speak and inspire in that or in any or all of those spaces. Mm. It just, it, to me, it just was like a light bulb moment. Um, when I was in the writing of the book, I didn't actually realise, you know, what it was going to become and how it was going to affect my life or me as a person or my professional or personal trajectory. But it's actually exactly what I needed to do to be able to get into this um, space of absolute peace with who I am and what I do and what I have to offer to be of service. Yeah. Well, speaking of those profound moments for you, I'll ask you about the Russell Crowe moment after the break because that's a great story. But just on a far more trivial note, when you talk about getting permission from, from people to tell their stories, did you ask Danny Green, boxer Danny Green, about including a moment where you're at a party together and he swallows your goldfish? <laughs> Tim, that is spoiler alert. That is spoiler alert. But yes, I did get his permission. I got Greeny's permission for that. A, a, I sent another a Scarborough and... local legend. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you were neighbours. You were friends as well growing up. But I'll say no more. We'll say yes. no more. That no may more. or may not be in the story. Read it anyway. <laughs> I mean, we need to take a break. This is Inspiring Stories. Mimi Kwa is our special guest. We'll be back with more and the Russell Crowe story right after this. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. 
Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Tim McMillan is my name. My special guest is journalist, author, entrepreneur, broadcaster, presenter, you name it, uh, Mimi Kwa, who I must say we've lost to Melbourne now for some years, but she is a, a proud West Australian at heart. Um, Mim, I mentioned at the very top of the show, you were a bit of a trailblazer when you got into journalism, which I know wasn't your dad's number one career choice for you, but let's gloss over that for a moment. You did it anyway. Um, you went on to become... I think the first uh, woman of, of Asian background in commercial TV news in Australia. Yeah. Oh, well, at least on Channel 9, I'm mm. told, if not um, across all of the commercial networks in Australia. I'm happy to take that, though, if you, take if it. you want to. Take it. I've just thrown it out on there. A plaque Let's not fact check it. Just name. take it. <laughs> I will. I will. Now, tell me um, about one of your yeah. early experiences um, on the road as a reporter then. Um, a meeting with Russell Crowe that, fair to say, did not go that well. Yeah, so so to set the scene, it was my first day at Channel 9 and I'd already walked in. In Melbourne, to, that is. In Melbourne, yep. yes, Bendigo Street, Richmond, Melbourne. And I had a gruff boss and it was my first day and I'd just come across from the ABC where I'd done a cadetship. And so they trained me and then Channel 9 poached me. But I did go back to the ABC afterwards. Anyway, my gruff boss said to me, um, you're the first non-bloody wasp we've ever put on TV and don't get any fatter in the face. And I said, oh, okay. Charming. <laughs> so that was my induction. Then, and this is, you know, you'd never be able to say that these days, would you? But anyway, that was my first day at Channel 9. And then my chief of staff said, you're going to interview Russell Crowe. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is amazing because at the ABC we only ever interview politicians and do serious stories and now I get to go and interview a movie star. So I get in the crew car and we go to Melbourne Airport where I think that this interview is all organised and set up. But as I'm standing at the arrivals gate, I look around and I realise that we're the only ones there and that there is a chauffeur driver, a limousine driver in uniform holding a sign that says Mr Dumbrell. And so suddenly I have a light bulb moment and I think, aha, we are going to doorstop Russell Crowe, which is what you... That's a term that you use when you doorstop a politician just as they're, you know, coming out of a building or something. We're going to doorstop him. What I didn't realise is that we were actually there to ambush him. And I thought of my feet as Russell came off the aircraft and walked into the terminal and I thought I'd be funny. So I went up to him and I said, hi, Mr. Dumbrell because I thought, oh, oh that's yeah. his assumed name. <laughs> Hi, Mr. Dumbrell. I'm Mimi Kwa from the ABC. I didn't even remember oh, where I was from. And he said, what? What did you call me? And I said, oh, I just said, Mr. Dumbrell, I was just trying to be funny, but it's my first day at Channel 9 and I came from the ABC last week. Anyway, I was uh, just a pool of nerves and he just looked at me and gave me his like, hando romper stomper look. I was going to say, and this is around romper stomper era, this, Russell Crowe, yes. right? A little bit scary. And then a little bit scary. He'd just done Gladiator. He'd just done the movie Proof of Life with Meg Ryan. And when I left the newsroom, I forgot to mention this. This is very important in the story. When I left the newsroom on my first assignment for Channel 9 National News, my boss said, and don't forget to find out if there are any wedding bells with Meg Ryan. 
So, of course, I thought, yes, of course he's going to tell me. So, I'm running through Tullamarine Airport, Melbourne Airport, after this mega movie star with the cameras um, going backwards, you know, in front of us and the sea of people partying. And because they're all like, oh, my gosh, it's Russell Crowe and it's a TV crew. And there's me running behind him saying, Russell, Russell, any wedding bells with Meg Ryan? And he just, he was horrified and just turned around and quite understandably told me to F off. And I, as a young journalist, just stood there in the middle of Tullamarine Airport and cried and cried and cried. But what I didn't know until I got back to Channel 9, because my news crew didn't tell me because everybody was having a bit of fun with the new girl on her first day, what I didn't know, as I put the tape of me humiliating myself, chasing Russell Crowe through the airport, trying to ambush him after the Sydney Olympics, so yeah, this is 21 years ago, as I my hands were shaking, putting the tape into the machine to watch it back on the monitor and everyone from marketing, from finance, from a current affair downstairs, from sales, all came in to see what the new girl got with Russell Crowe. And so I have like 60 people behind me <laughs> and this little tape machine and they watch me making a fool of myself through the airport. They see me crying. But then what I didn't see was the camera crew followed Russell to the limousine and he wound down the window of the limousine and he looked directly down the barrel of the camera and he said, Mimi, I hope you find something useful to do with your life. What a And burn. that was my first day of work with all of my new colleagues seeing Russell Crowe let me know what he thought of my attempt at a first interview. Fantastic. But there is a happy There's end a gr- to that story. a great ending to the point where you almost thank Russell for that initial yes. brutal put down. It, absolutely. Without so giving I too much away, tell us, yeah, oh, yes, yes, tell us yes. how it rounded out. Well, it, it rounded out where I was actually able to close that chapter of my story with him because I was given another opportunity to interview him. He remembered and you? I, and yep. he remembered me. And do you want me to tell the whole story? It is no, a spoiler, but no, I'll just... No, it's a spoiler, tell- no? so don't, okay. don't give it all away. But um, you, you reached an understanding, shall we say. We, we did. Reached we an, you reached an understanding. understanding. Um, also, without giving too much away, your book, going back to House of Qua, because I mentioned at the start, Qua v Qua, in the Supreme Court of Western Australia, we do get a resolution on that as well. Um, but again, you probably don't want to give that away. Um, no, But it's a fascinating ending, so don't. <laughs> Um, Mimi, thank you so much for sharing your story. I feel like we've only scratched the surface, but of course, if people want to know more, House of Choir is where to find it. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Tim. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. We look forward to you joining us next time as we unearth another inspiring story. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Here's some tips for maintaining your Trex deck. Um, Occasionally wash it with some soapy water or a pressure cleaner. Trex composite decking is low maintenance and won't fade, splinter or warp. Trex, the world's number one decking brand.